and teachers to empower and equip the church. And it's always great to have friends from Australia, a great nation, and meeting people that love God with a passion. And I met Pastor Gary Rucci for the first time yesterday. Uh, the arrangement was that he was staying with our friends Gene and, and Jeff Pickup and uh, having, having been with uh, in meetings during the week. And um, sort, of, sort of spent the day with Gary. Uh, of course, he may be thinking, well, who's this guy that's going to pick me up? Is he, is he a weirdo or is he, you know, he going to be okay? And I, I might be thinking, is the conversation going to dry up in 15 minutes? And Anyway, he, he, he'd watched the game the night before and it became pretty apparent but one, he liked football, and two, he knew more about the England team than me, so I knew we were going to be okay. All right. Gary carries a deep spirituality, a great conversion, a passion for God's world. He's been to many nations on mission and has worked with some of the major leaders in Assemblies of God in Australia. And it's a delight to have him with us this morning. Now, here's the story. Let me take you back to 5 to 11. We've got a great family in our church. They pitch up at church every week. They love the church. They bring the kids. I think they love the pastors. But anyway, they're talking to each other at 5 to 11 this morning. And the husband says to the wife, hey, we've got a speaker this morning. And the husband says, well, we have a speaker every morning. No, no, we've got a proper speaker this morning. <laughs> I did think that I wouldn't embarrass them, but Alison Douglas, we still love you amazingly. You know. <laughs> Friends, I want, to give, I want to encourage you this morning to give an absolutely amazing welcome to a proper speaker, Pastor Gary Rucci. Come on, Gary. Uh, that's a cool story. This is a proper speaker, by the way. This here. It's a proper speaker. Good morning. How are you all? As we say, g'day. First of all, thank you for the chocolates. That's for my wife there. And so, because you're so nice, that's for me. That's for my son. Christian, you can get that. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. I heard someone swearing in the corridor on the way up. They said they were Manchester United supporters. <laughs> Sorry. And then uh, I'm a Liverpool supporter, by the way, so don't kill me, but Christian, you and me. right there, buddy. <laughs> you and me only, I can see. So I'm up for a stoning. Anyway, it's good to be here. As I said in the, uh, the uh, earlier service, it's just great to be with you. I count it a privilege and honor. I never take these opportunities for granted. I think that uh, God and his wisdom, as he's building the church, brings people together for certain times in history, for certain moments in church life, and uh, I take that very seriously. I'm also very conscious that we have limited time together, and, uh, but I really want to unpack some thoughts here this morning. Uh, it seemed to resonate quite well with the 9 a.m. service, so we'll go again. So those of you who are in for a second dose, forgive me. Amen. Fantastic. I, my earliest recollections of Christianity are contained within two books. Um, interesting, because my mum had a childhood experience with God. Her dad was a Presbyterian lay preacher. He was Dutch. I'm from Dutch heritage. The name Rucci, or Rucci, as we say, probably start bene too, um, is, from my, is from my stepdad. I'm actually not Italian. I don't look Italian. Um, but he's been my stepdad since I was three. Uh, during a critical era of my life when my biological father left, my mum, obviously looking to put, try and put some support me- mechanisms around my life, sent me along to Sunday school. It was almost like in her moment of need, she sort of reverted back to what she knew was best, which was the, you know, the ways of God. And so put me in a children's church. And I've got these two books at home that have my original name. They're not my Rucci name, but my original name, which is really, really funny to look at. You know, um, I changed my name by deed poll. My dad didn't really adopt me, and my mum and dad never got married. But we just all adopted the name, and I took my name on legally. 
by Deedpole. So it's, a bit, it's odd for me when I look at these two books and see 1969 and 1970, you know, Gary John Rose, R-O-S-E, you know, as my original name. Um, but they represent for me my earliest encounters with God. And I can honestly say to you there was 12 years of silence after that. I don't recall anyone ever talking to me about God. I don't, ever, I don't recall anyone ever talking to me about church or anything like that right through those, those next 12 years. Uh, in 1983, I was 18 years of age. My girlfriend, Nikki, I was 17 years of age. Um, and we were coming out of this, the Odeon Cinemas in, in Townsville, which is far north Queensland. Okay? And um, we just went to see the, the movie The Day After. And uh, The Day After was uh, an, an apocalyptic film about Russia bombing uh, America, Stephen Guttenberg and Jason Robard. Some of you might remember if you're old enough to remember that sort of film. Um, and we were sort of into that whole Big Bang theory, you know, where this idea that there was some guy, some lunatic sitting in a room, you didn't want to upset him, and he was in this big locked room and had a big desk with a red button on it, and he's the one that's going to blow the world up, you know. And uh, to me, I, we sort of lived on this uh, fear and trepidation that someone would upset him one day and he just he'd hit the button, you know. Um, and, you know, we followed, you know, musicians like Midnight Oil and others like that, which are more like an Australian band. And uh, they had this anti-nuclear disarmament party. And, you know, we sort of followed that, you know. And the Big Bang Theory was very real to us. And uh, we came out of the cinemas that night after watching this film the day after. And uh, there was these, these, these young, I don't know, geeky, nerdy-looking people standing there and they had these pieces of paper they were handing out to everybody and I was a bit of a lad a bit of an attitude you know I was left school I was I was I was in my apprenticeship as a painter and decorator and got my wife and my girlfriend with me and I'm sort of just got out of the cinemas and there's this dorky looking bloke and he you know god bless you <laughs> sort of like that and shoved this piece of paper in my hand I went <laughs> like this you know sort of agitated with him like Get out of <laughs> like this, you know. And I probably said a few other words, but anyway, <laughs> there was more than grunts going on. But um, I took this piece of paper and sort of folded it like that, and sort of you know, in, in the in the pocket, and kept on walking. You know, Nikki took one. Nikki's more like polite, like thank you, you know, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> and puts it in the pocket, and off we go. You know, and uh, the thing was, you know, my habit is when I go home, I clear my pockets before I get changed, and uh, and before I put my jeans somewhere else, I clear my pockets. And I took this piece of paper out and I looked at it. And I can still remember that night, I read it through three times. Because I was intrigued what these people, what, what these church people would say to me about what I believe was the most critical issue in the world. Right? And the bottom line was, trust Jesus. I'm thinking like, come on, get a life, dudes. Like, go and kill the guy with the button. I mean, do something, you know. There's got to be more than that. Surely God's got a better plan than that, you know. Anyway. I remember talking to Nikki the next day and having this conversation about, well, did you read that piece of paper? She said she did, you know, and we had this intriguing conversation about what was written in this piece of paper. What you need to know is, I realize it now, I didn't realize it then, but I realize it now, that the, the moment that, that young bloke stuck that piece of paper in my hand, uh, an alarm clock was set on my heart. Um, God used this person to do something inside of me. They watered 12-year-old seeds in my heart. Now, I can say that now, looking back at the time, I wouldn't have thought so. And I can say to you that almost two years to the day I became a Christian. Seven months later, we were married. Two and a half years after that, we were in full-time 
ministry. From the moment the track was placed in my hand to the moment I stood behind a pulpit for the first time to preach a sermon was almost five years to the day. It was like an alarm clock went off. So for me, I stand here this morning with immense gratitude and amazement that God uses people to reach people. I'm, I'm never cease to be amazed that God would, who he uses to reach people like me. Who he uses all around the world. I've traveled to more than 40 nations around the world, and I love going to the developing world. I have a passion for that, for social justice, for poverty eradication. I, I love those things. I love, Nikki and I have taken 500, more than 500 people on short-term missions teams because we believe people should get a, get a bigger worldview. Right? Where we live, by the way, you know, the Western world, which incorporates basically the Americas, the North Americas, Australia, Japan is now included, Western Europe, including the UK included, only makes up a less than 10% of the world's population, yet we control more than 90% of the world's wealth. My Bible says, to whom much is given, from him much will also be required. Rem- let me remind you, that wasn't the government that said that nor an NGO, that was God who said that. So I take it very seriously. And I think that the only way we can ever be touched and moved to do something more with our affluence, right, is that we need to see the need around about us. Our affluence is for our influence, is a little phrase that I coin. Anyway, it's on the side. But I never seem to get, I never cease to be amazed at who God uses to reach people and how he uses people to reach people people. I want to talk about that this morning. Is that okay? If you have a Bible, open up at Acts chapter 3. We're going to read a story here that you're very familiar with. I'm sure you would have heard some sermons out of this, but I'm going to come from a slightly different angle, hopefully. Um, Acts 3, if you don't have a Bible, look along the person beside you. Um, grab a piece of paper, take some notes down. If you don't have a viral paper, use your lip liner or something like that. That was for the guys, by the way, use a lip liner. Anyway, no, joking. Uh, now, Peter and John went together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, watch this, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms, A-L-M-S, as in charity, coins, from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them. He was walking, leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. The story goes on and records that Peter preached a sermon as a result of the gathered crowd. Go into Acts 4, verse 4, and it says this, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to 5,000. 
It records men, 5,000, being saved, let alone women and children who may have been in a hearing distance and therefore have believed as well. An amazing thing took place. I want to suggest to you this morning that this story, you've probably heard it before, heard it referred to before, or even preached from, is an amazing miracle. But I want to say to you today, there are three miracles here, not one. Miracle number one is this. They stopped. That, to me, is miraculous. In our, our, our high-tech, fast, deadline-driven, consumer-oriented society, there's not too many things we stop for. We're just too busy. It seems that the busyness of our age and the busyness of living in, in the Western world has almost made us immune to what's going on about us. And we are just too busy on our way to somewhere else. But I want to say to you this morning that this amazing miracle happened because someone stopped. Write in your notes down this, these words, I need to start stopping. We don't stop enough. Now, God isn't asking us to stop for everything. That is true. But we don't stop enough. Let me describe this lame man to you. See, this lame man was well positioned, you see. I mean, pretty smart, strategic thinker, really, as a beggar. He was at the temple. I mean... I mean, some of us would have thought, maybe go outside the economic district, okay? As we know, there was a lot of economics that took place in and around the temple. But going outside the temple, uh, he was hoping that the religious people who were going in and out would be the compassionate ones at least. Wouldn't have you thought that? At least if they weren't compassionate on the way in, perhaps on the way out after praying, they would be. They have some kindness, some levels of compassion toward him. And so he is carried, listen to it, carried daily there. Now, if you read on in, in Acts chapter 4, it says this man who, whom, on whom this miracle was performed. That's what it says. At the end of Acts 4, it says he was more than 40 years of age. So you've got a picture now of this 40-year-old man who is severely disabled. Are you with me? And he has been crippled from his mother's womb. And he's been carried there. Possibly from the time that he could speak or he was taught to beg, he has been carried there. Now picture this. He would not have been the only beggar there. There would have been other beggars there. He's been there for maybe three decades. Every day he's been there, he blends in. He is, as we would say, he's become part of the furniture. He's become part of the decor. You know when there's things, you just don't observe them anymore? I come into your church for the very first time, and I see things that maybe you saw once, but you don't see anymore. But I see them fresh, with fresh eyes. For me, this is the carpet you've always had. <laughs> but for you, this is a new carpet, you see. But I will see other things that you may not see. In the same way, if people have been going to the temple regularly, this man's always been there. They don't even recognize that he's there anymore. And he's just one of the crowd. What would make him stand out? Nothing, really. It wasn't like he stood out from the crowd or above the crowd because he was on the ground, for starters. This is a picture of what he looked like. The, the palms of his hands would have been like the soles of your feet. He dragged himself around. He had no use of his legs. He dragged himself around on his hands. So if you'd have shaken his hand, it would have been like grabbing someone's foot. It wouldn't have been clean. It would have been filthy. He wasn't dragging around on carpet on beautiful paved streets. It was mainly on dirt. This is the Middle East. We're going back a long time, 2,000 years. Think about it. He would have been dirty. His hair would have been matted and dark. He would have looked a lot darker skinned than the most of us in this room, not because of his heritage, but because of dirt. His, his hair would have been matted like a mop just continually picking things up from the ground. 
It's possible that he sat there all day. It doesn't indicate how long he sat there, but he was there for a long time. So he possibly urinated and defecated in the same place. He would have smelt. Listen to me, there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't stop. Are you with me this morning? There's a lot of reasons why you would not have recognized the man. It doesn't say that he had a louder voice than everybody else as he called out for alms. He was singing the same tune as everyone else. Give me some money. I'm hungry. Give me some food. Give me something. Wouldn't he? Didn't say that he was a busker with a beautiful voice. He was just a 40-year-old man who'd been crippled from his mother's womb and he didn't look too good, he didn't smell too good, but there he was on the ground. So ask me, come with me today, ask yourself the question, what would cause them to stop? What would cause any of us to stop? Why would you stop? If not for the compassion and the kindness of Christ living inside of you. What would compel you to stop for such a person? Think about it. It would not be that you look at a person, you see within them the image of Christ, and you realize that you're made in the same image of them. I've had those encounters in China. I can remember at Zhengzhou Station standing there and seeing this beautiful little girl and a little boy with arms deliberately hacked off by the pimp across the road, looking to take coins from them. And God said to me, he said, Gary, look at those two girls over there. So you see them? He says, I know their names. And I pronounced them right as well. And I know how many hairs are on their head. And I know how many tears they cry. And I put them in my bottle. Do you realize how important they are to me? Don't think you're anyone special, Gary. Don't think you're anyone special. I walked over to them. And I would dare not give them money to know that pimp across the street would come and take it from their tin. So I gave them a muesli bar each and stood there and watched them eat it, fully consume it. At least I knew I gave them some food for the day. I can't change the society from where I am, but I can do something. What would cause you to stop? I'm not talking about beggars today. You're catching my drift here this morning. What would cause you to stop for the broken-hearted single mum in your workplace? What would cause you to stop for the 85-year-old lady who's just lost her childhood sweetheart, who's now broken-hearted and doesn't know what the rest of life now represents for her? What would you say to the man who's just found out that he's just been diagnosed with cancer and only has a year to live? What would cause you to stop? What causes you in the, in the busyness of your schedule to stop for anybody? And I want to say to you this morning, this miracle happened because there was firstly another miracle. The miracle was they stopped. They stopped. They were busy. They were rushing on their way to church just like the rest of us, just like the rest, the, the rest of society, religious society in particular, on their way to church this morning. We're just too busy to get there on time, to enjoy our worship and to leave again. Are you with me this morning? I'm not preaching at you. I'm speaking to me this morning. Would you catch my heart? We're so busy. But things happen in the kingdom of God when someone starts to stop. Let's start stopping. Amen? We don't like to be inconvenienced. We don't like to be disrupted. We don't like interruptions. We even use this word divine interruption. It's like God divinely interrupted us. I think he's looking to interrupt us all the time. I don't think we need to over-spiritualize the situation here. Um... Maybe the name John War, was it the name I had in the first service? Let me just see, get his name right. John War, it was John War. Maybe the name John War doesn't mean a real lot to you, but it meant something significant to a young man called William. William used to work with John War, though applied by a guy called Clark Nichols, who was a shoemaker. John loved William, and John was a Christian. William wasn't, and John used to go out of his way as much as he could to tell William in simple ways that he could understand that God loved him and had a plan for his life. Long, long, long story short, William became a Christian 
and became a great missionary. I'm talking about William Carey, the father of modern missions who hails from your shores, who went to India and was there for 41 years, never took furlough like our modern missionaries, lived on that field for 41 years, totally immersed in the culture and transformed it. If you look at the teachings and the, and the background of William Carey, you see, a, you see a, a reformer. But how did he get there? Don't forget John. It was John Moore. At least someone wrote his name down somewhere in history for someone like me to pick it up somewhere in a story and remind you. Maybe the name Albert McMakin and the name uh, J- Grady Wilson and Crook Stafford and, and J.D. Pravat mean nothing to you either. But they mean a real lot to Billy Graham. Because they're the four people that played a part together at a critical time in his life in seeing Billy Graham come into the kingdom of God. The story goes like this, that Billy Graham was a troubled teenager. He went to church, but he had serious, serious issues with his faith. He went to church under duress. Out of his own mouth, he said that. His parents were Christians, but he went there not because he wanted to. Mordecai Ham, 1934, comes into their town in Charlotte, Carolina, and he's holding crusades. And an evangelist back in those days was like a weird individual. And there was no way that Billy Graham was going to go along and see this dude, this salesman of some sort. You know, And for more than a month, he avoided going to all of these meetings until Albert McMakin conned him into going. Conned him. You see, Billy was trying to learn how to drive a, uh, drive a car, and Albert happened to own a truck, a pickup. And he says to him, well, if you come along to the meeting, I'll let you drive a truck. Billy's a good deal. So he went along. He drove the truck. Needless to say, he drove the pickup, but they loaded the backup with lots of other people. As well, so here's this learner driver with a pickup full of people. I'm like, that's dangerous, right? Yeah, no one to gob was with them, right? <laughs> and off they went to the crusade to see Mordecai Ham. Needless to say, Billy Graham was totally riveted, he says, totally engrossed with what he had to say. This Mordecai Ham was incredible, an orator of God's word. But there was one thing about Mordecai Ham that really upset him, had this piercing stare. Especially when he spoke about sin and repentance, he would always stare people down. And people would literally duck, you know, for cover. They say he had this way of just staring people down for like 30 seconds of his message and not even move his eyes, you know. And so Billy Graham was constantly like this behind the heads and ducking and head down. As soon as he saw the air, I said, here he comes near me, you know, like that. Try to avoid him. Anyway, he struck up a friendship with a guy called Grady Wilson who felt exactly the same thing. He said, that Mordecai Ham, he's a good preacher, but gee, he's annoying. He's always staring. So they struck up a deal. Him and Grady Wilson, they're going to join the choir. Because the choir stood up there the whole night. They stood up there behind the preacher so they could hear but not be convicted, they said. Oh, how cool was that? But here's the deal. Now they're in the choir. They're going to go to choir practice. They're going to come in early for the meetings. And Billy Graham didn't live in the, in the town. He lived out on the outskirts on his dad's farm. He couldn't get there. Enter Crook Stafford. Crook Stafford says to Billy Graham, I will go out of my way and I will come and get you every time and bring you in for choir practice. Praise God for Crook Stafford, who went out of his way to get him. And he brought him in every single time. Eventually, hearing the voice, hearing the message over and over again, Mordecai Ham, uh, Billy Graham realized that what Mordecai Ham was saying was true. He could not get to heaven based on his mum and dad's relationship with God. He realized he had to make a decision for himself. He realized that no amount of choir service, no amount of being trying to be good was ever going to make him right with God. He understood that he needed to make a decision for himself to be right with God. So there's one of those nights he was there, the altar call is given, and he made his way to the front and stood in the row. 
He's standing there and he says that there were other people there and they were crying. In particular, there's a woman beside him that was overcome with emotion. And he looked at her and he felt, there must be something wrong with me. She's crying, she's feeling emotion, but I feel nothing. I just feel that I need to do this. And he began to wrestle inside of himself saying, this, I've, made a, I've made a wrong decision, I'm not ready for this. And he was about to turn around, leave the altar call and go back to his seat, quote unquote, from Just As I Am, autobiography, Billy Graham. When J.D. Bravat, a family friend, saw him out the front and walked across the room, came across and stood beside him, put his arm around him and explained to him what he was doing. And right there and then, J.D. Bravat led Billy Graham into the kingdom of God. Praise God, eh? See, I never cease to be amazed, never cease to be amazed at how God uses people to reach people. If it wasn't for those four men, I wonder where Billy Graham would have been. And the multiplied billions of people. Yes, okay, maybe an exaggeration. Hundreds of millions. Billions probably close to it, though, that have been influenced by his ministry. Think about it. Amazing. So let's, let's start to be inconvenienced in some way. I'll read to you just one story because I realize that Paul Scanlon's church caught a hold of this theme about two or three years ago in his church. He's up from Bradford in your nation here. And um, he started a thing called the 15 Revolution. So encourage his congregation every day for 15 minutes, be inconvenienced. Allow someone to inconvenience you for 15 minutes every day. And tell us what happens just, just to see what God does with that. All right. And so they did, and they started up a blog, and there's a couple of stories on there, and I'll, I'll read them to you, or maybe just one of them, see how we go for time. Uh, this is a young, couple of young guys. It was a pretty cold Sunday afternoon in April 2008. It was snowing, in fact, and I and a friend were playing Pro Evo on PlayStation. We're fed up of winning, I spontaneously suggested that we just go into the city uh, and take a homeless guy out for lunch. It was so incredibly random and didn't even fit in with the day's plans. Anyway, he agreed, and we went along. We looked around the whole city centre and could find no homeless. It was snowing, so maybe we thought they went somewhere out of the cold. In the meantime, we decided to pray for our city as we were going along. During these moments, God really laid on our hearts to keep on looking. We were wet, we were cold, we were hungry, but God wanted to inconvenience us. Moments later, we saw a man going through a bin. He was looking for cigarette butts. Uh, we started to get excited because we'd finally found the one. Uh, we followed him for a while, and we'd, as we'd try to discuss how to best approach him, and as we walked over, he was having a wee. <laughs> so we just didn't move for a few seconds. And you know, after he completed his task, I said, hey, man, you want to go for something to eat? And he was, looked startled. I mean, it was a bit random, wasn't it? From his point of view, he just had a wee. And now he's being stalked by two young hoodlums. <laughs> we introduced ourselves and we went to KFC. He was totally shocked. His name was Dave, later known as Homeless Dave and later on Homie Dave. And we just talked and we let him eat and as much as he wanted. We just said we were from church and he should know there was a God who loves him. We didn't sort of go into the God stuff too much. We didn't have to because we were living it and showing it through our actions. We asked Dave to come to church that night and to our surprise he did. And he asked Jesus into his life. From that moment onwards, week in, week out, we have been to the city center and we fed the homeless from a sandwich bag and a flask of coffee. But now currently we have 10 volunteers going in every week and we feed between 40 to 70 homeless people every week. Isn't that credible? I, I love those stories, don't you? Come on, you've got to get excited. To, you've got to get excited. You've got to understand, if, you, if we lose sight of the one, we've lost sight of the kingdom of God. Have you noticed that about God? The one, the one, the one at the pool, the one at the gate? Have you noticed that? 
Have you noticed that? The one on the side of the road, the one over here, the one over there, the one, the one, the one up the tree, the one. There's always the one. And no matter Jesus in his busyness always had time for the one, it says this, that even though the crowds thronged him, interesting word, thronged, not thonged, thronged, thronged him. Interesting word, thronged him. He still had time. Watch it. Crowds all around him. And he saw the one. I'm challenged by that. As a busy person, I'm challenged by that, Eric. I really am. That God took time for one. I wish we would do that. I really do. Anyway, let's move on from there because we're running out of time. That was the first miracle. They stopped. Here's the second miracle. Second miracle, I believe, is this. They didn't focus on their limitations. I believe the pivotal point in the actual story is when they said these words. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have. You see, we are so quick, even though we're so affluent, so resourceful, have so much stuff, which we think makes us happy, so much stuff going on, right? With all of that, we're even so quick to look at what we can't do and the difference that we can't make. We're very quick at focusing on our limitations. We're quick to pass the blame and point the finger rather than look in the mirror. We're quick to to identify the problem and pass the buck to someone else rather than find the solution ourselves. We're so quick to talk about how things have never changed around here and that's the way it's always been. We're so quick to do that rather than say what we can do. Something incredible happens in our lives, in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods, when we stop focusing on what we don't have and give to God an opportunity to use what we do have. So this needs to be our new phrase. Well, God, I don't have that, but what I do have, I give to you. So here's this incredible story. Here's Moses. He's got all of Israel whinging. They wanna, the Bible says they want to kill him. They want to stone him. Why have you brought us out here to be killed by the Pharaoh, by the Egyptians? Why did you leave us back in Egypt? And here they are on this side, all of them, millions of them, wanting to kill him. And what's in front of him? A sea, a red sea. And he looks to God and says, God, what do I do? And he says, stretch out your stick. Stretch out your stick, is what he said. What's in your hand is actually what he said. Stretch out your rod and watch the salvation of God. I mean, think about that. Here he is stuck between an army and a hard place, right? A rock and a hard place between an army and a sea. And he looks to God and God says, I'll take what's, I'll take what's in your hand. Thank you very much. Did you catch that? Uh, Gideon, what are you going to do? Uh, 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 a jug and a trumpet. Think about it. And I'll scatter the army. Oh, really? I'll just take what's in your hand, Gideon. Oh, widow, I have nothing. Nothing but a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. Prophet says, great, God will take that. Thank you very much. Are you with me? Joshua, what's in your hand? I know you've got a a whinging army of followers. So therefore, they will walk around this great city of Jericho. They will not say anything with their mouth nor grunt with their throat, the Bible says. No murmuring from their mouth and no grunting with their throat. That means none of this. So God knew them so well. He says, no complaining and whinging with your mouth, but not even any grunting from your throat. Read the verses again. Ever done that? As if, here we go. 
Yeah, I mean, here we go. And get this, get this, right? Because, you know, these people who march around cities for seven days got it all wrong. You understand that? Because they did it 13 times. They did it 13 times. Read the scripture again. It was 13 times. So God even, 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 adding in some humor, uses the devil's number to bring down the city. Go and read it again. Once a day for six days, seven times on the last day. One to, six plus seven equals 13. 13 times to bring the city down. Not seven times, by the way. Mm. It's just like God, isn't it? Just take what's in your hand to bring a city down. And then at the end of it, what are you going to do? No one's made a noise. No one's had to throw a stone. No spears. No chariots. Nothing. Just going to go, yeah! And I will collapse the city walls. Really? I would have said, Joshua, you're smoking something. There's something wrong with you, dude. I ain't following you. Think about it. So why am I saying all that? You can enjoy the humor, but what am I saying? God will use what's in your hand. Oh, we're so quick to look at, you know, our lack of education or our lack of skills or our lack of opportunity, we say. Oh, he's luckier than me. He's prettier than me. Oh, he's prettier than me. Uh, she's prettier than me. Uh, he's more educated than me. And we do all these things. But, you know, my Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. Have you read it before? Not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise are called, is what it says. It doesn't say no mighty. No wise, no noble, of course, there's not many, not many. But God has chosen the weak, the foolish, the small, the insignificant. Read it all the way through in any version you want. It gets better and better the more you read it all the way through there. But God has chosen. So this is what it says to me. There's this really, there's this line here of mighty, noble, and wise people that God uses. And then there's this really, really, really huge, huge line that has people like Gary and Nikki standing in it. Small, insignificant, oh, small, operative. <laughs> Short, small, not enough education. Are you hearing me? So no excuses. Come and join the queue. Come and join my line. Are you with me? Hip, hip. Or hip hip replacement, whatever you like. Hip hip, hooray. <laughs> Think about it. It's a long, it's a long line. But that's the line that we're standing in. Huh? Oh, come on. That's the line we're standing in. But we're so quick to just dismiss ourselves from the line. Thinking that's the queue. That's only Bono's in that queue. Only T.D. Jakes is in that queue. I mean, come on. I'm in that queue. I don't care where those dudes are. I'm in that queue. Because I'm one of those people. I'm not wise. I'm not noble. And I'm not mighty. I have no problem saying that to you. I'm just ordinary bloke from Queensland. That's who I am. But I know that God can use me. If I'll get my eyes off myself, and I'll start stopping and stop looking at my limitations and say, God, I am what I am. And by your grace, I can do whatever you ask me to do. Hallelujah. Sounds a little bit like the Apostle Paul. He said the same thing, didn't he? I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the chief of all sinners, he said. Amen. And the third miracle? What was the third miracle? Look at your notes, Phil. What was it? (laughs) They stepped out in faith. Thank you. The third miracle is they stepped out in faith. I'm skipping it over. It's a little bit different from the 9 a.m., but that's okay. They stepped out in faith. Imagine that. That's where we see the miracle happening. They stepped out in faith. Uh, I want you to make note of something that's really, really important here. Please note, the miracle happened on the way to church. 
It did not happen in the church. I just want you to catch that. I'm pausing, so I want you to really catch that thought. That contrary to popular opinion, the place of the manifestation of God's power, the place of the manifestation of his ministry gifts, and the gifts that he puts on your life, and the place of miracles is actually in the marketplace. It's not to the exclusion of the church, but it's in the marketplace. That's where it is. J.K. Johnson did a study on the life of Christ from the four Gospels and records that he had 132 encounters with individual people, 132, of which 122 of them were in the marketplace. Four in the synagogue, or four, yeah, four in the synagogue and six in the temple. And here's our example. Yes? Here's our example. In the marketplace. Do you recognize that God is at work in the world, not just in the four walls of the church? He's at work in the world. You see, he was at work in Gary and Nikki Rucci walking outside of a cinema complex debating over the Big Bang Theory. I see that. Put that paper in his hand. Let me start something happening here. You're thinking about that. God was at work in me. So here we have this. It's, it's a pattern, you know, in Scripture. Let's just have a quick look at one. Acts 8, 9, 10. Acts 8, there's this guy. He's an Ethiopian eunuch, they say. He's a black man. He's traveling along on a chariot. He has been to Jerusalem seeking God for himself in his own way, out of his understanding. He's on a chariot and he's reading some parchments, some scriptures. Apparently it's Isaiah, but he hasn't got a clue what he's reading. He doesn't understand. Philip is in the middle of revival church meetings in Samaria. People are getting saved. There's miracles. Demons are coming out with loud, vehement cries. That's what it says. He's having a great time. He's having a ball, right? God sees this man, the hunger of his heart, and he takes Philip out the middle of revival meetings to go to this one man. Why? Because God was not only at work in Samaria, he was at work in a man on a chariot down a dusty road. And notice this, God couldn't save him all by himself. He needed someone to do it. He needed someone. I know we don't save anyone. He needed someone to be his instrument, to be his method. And so he gets, he gets Philip from there to go there and explain it to him. Oh, God's so smart. He's strategic. He says, you know what? If I can get this man saved, I can influence Ethiopia. Why? Read the small print. He was the treasurer to the Queen Candace of Ethiopia. That's what it says. He was her personal banker. And God knew if I can get him, I have a voice inside the court. I can influence Ethiopia. If I can get Philip down there to convince this man that what he's reading is about me and get this man to understand the kingdom of God. It's just like God, isn't it? Just like God, isn't it? Turn over the page, Acts chapter 9. We read the story of a man called Saul. He's got leadership. He's got passion. He's got education. And he's convinced he's right. He's persecuting the church. And God looks from heaven and sees this man. And he says, you know what? I'm going to confront him and say he's doing it wrong. Notice that he couldn't convert him all by himself. He still needed a man to finish the deal. Are you hearing me? So he calls a man called Ananias, who's not a certain prophet, by the way. He's not a certain really cool preacher dude. It says one of his disciples called Ananias, just a person like you or me. And he says, I want you to go to Straight Street. I mean, that's pretty funny. Straight Street. Go there. And there's a guy called Saul. He knows who he Would he be freaked out? He says, that's the guy that kills everybody. Yeah, go and get him. I don't know about you, I wouldn't have gone there. <laughs> Think about it. Imagine if he'd obeyed his fear. Imagine if he'd obeyed his concerns. Imagine if he was too busy to go. 
Are you hearing me? I mean, this guy, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. This Saul who becomes Paul. This Ananias listened and he went. Why? Because God was at work in the world, not just inside Ananias' house, but at work in this guy walking down the street. Why? Because God knew if I can harness all of that leadership passion, if I can harness all that education, if I can harness his pharisaical understanding, if I can harness all the education on the Gamaliel, if I can get this guy, if I can get that same passion turned toward the right thing, oh, this man will change the world. No wonder Ananias was told, go and tell him I have great things planned for him. Turn one more page to Acts 10. You see, it just keeps on going. Acts 10, there's another one. A guy called Cornelius. He's a leader of the Italian regiment. It says he fears God. doesn't understand anything about God. He fears God, and he gives a charity a lot. He's a leader of a regiment. I like him because he's Italian. Leader of the regiment. And he's in Joppa, and across the other side of town, there's a guy called Peter who's having a wonderful prayer meeting. It says he even falls into a trance. Hallelujah. Something happens to him. It's not quite, it's not, they don't quite know what happens to him, but it's like he's caught up into the presence of God. He's having a wonderful time with God, and God says, go across the other side of town and go and tell this Gentile dude, right, about me. Imagine if he'd obeyed his religion. Imagine if he obeyed his prejudice. He was confronted on everything. Think about it, because he goes and openly admits, I'm not even supposed to be in your house. I'm not even supposed to be here. But I've come because I figured out that God really wants me here. He gave me this dream and there was an interpretation. Now I'm here. Think about that. Why? Because God wasn't just at work on a rooftop in a prayer meeting. God was at work at the other side of town in an Italian's house. Think about it. Why? Because God thinks strategically. Because he knew if I can get this guy saved, he'll influence the entire army. It's just like God, isn't it? Amen? Did you catch that this morning? Three miracles, not one. And if we would just realize that the reason, I think the truth, the power, the power of this story is not just a man got healed, but that 5,000 men got saved. That's incredible. Think about this. This man got helped powerfully. It's just like God to do for you what no one else can do. 30 years of charity still had him on the ground. 30 years of charity still had him bound. 30 years of charity still had him dependent on somebody else. But one encounter with God, and he was empowered to live a full life. No amount of coins could ever change his world, but one encounter with God. And you may be here this morning, you go along to church and do the church thing. You may be even what we classify as churched. Being churched doesn't necessarily make you Christian. There's church and there's unchurched and then there's Christian people and then there's people who are really committed to Christ, who are walking in that great journey with him. But you're here this morning, and I just want you to know something. I'll hand it over to Christian in just one moment. I want you to know something. I'm not here by fluke. I'm not here by chance this morning. I believe this is a word in season for your church. I believe it's going to be a helpful word to you as you meditate on it and think about it as the year rolls on. But let's start stopping. Let's stop looking at what we can't do and realize that God wants to use what's in your hand and step out in faith. Realize that God is at work right there, right there in the smoker room, as we say in Australia, the lunch room, the smoker room. Because you know, the smoke O's, smoker. He's right there at work wherever you might be, in your, in your family, in your neighborhood, he is there. And this morning you've come along to church, I want you to know 
God loves you in the same way he got my attention. And so that cinema complex is trying to get your attention today as well. He loves you. He's had his eye on you since you came out of your mum's womb. In fact, the Bible says before, while you were being stitched together in your mummy's womb, he knew all about you. That's how good God is. Amen. God bless you. It's been great to be with you this morning.